what a blessing when you play for us. We're very thankful for that. <clears throat> the most significant or probably thematic, I should say, part of that song where most of the scripture is drawing from is the battle language of Ephesians 6, which after explaining what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit from 5.18 through 6.9, the apostle closes his letter with his final uh, his final. Uh, section of exhortation, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and therefore take up the full armor, the panoply of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The challenge is clear, and we forget. We neglect the fact that we're at war to our own peril. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being at war and not knowing it? You have have armor sitting there on the armor stand. If you have armor, you need a stand to put it on. You don't sleep in it. You get up in the morning, feeling pretty good. Let's go about our day. Let's just go out and go forth and conquer. And you don't put your armor on as though there's not flaming arrows flying at you from all directions. It's an insane suggestion. It's that person that the hand grenade rolls right into your, to your little bunk area and you just don't even notice. And there's this danger and you are not righteously careful. You're not, you're not at, a, at a level of alertness commensurate with the danger that you're facing. This is the world we live in. This is the Christian culture that we're, we find today. As we're wealthy, we're not struggling, we're not hurting. We had September 11th, but I mean, it's 2018. It's been 17 September 11ths since that first one when we had the, the actual disaster and then churches filled up and American flags came out and we all got holy again. And one of those is holy, you know, I mean, specifically Christian to come to to worship and pray. But but we just, if we can't see it or touch it, it's not real to us. And uh, thankfully, you've made a different choice. You said, wait a second, we're under fire and we need the shield of faith. You know, the shield of faith is the only thing that extinguishes Satan's arrows. It's the only thing. According to the scriptures, and lift the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. But here's the thought about this. If you're not in the word, what are you trusting? What do you have to occupy your thoughts to direct your faith to? See, we're not here just to learn stuff. We're here to have an object of our faith that grows in our perspective. And I don't know about you. I probably do. uh, But I do certainly know about me. I need a check and a reset on my perspective at least daily. At least daily. Daily, I've got to get back out of the temporal and back in to the eternal. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We'll open the word tonight with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do not want the word to fall on deaf ears or closed hearts. We don't want to waste the wonderful opportunity you put before us. In fact, we ask that you strengthen us to redeem the time, for the days are evil. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're studying the mission. The mission the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, and we're discussing some of the things that have to go together in our thoughts when we hear a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. So authority, obedience, and fellowship, church age, Holy Spirit-filled Christian fellowship with God, given the reality of the Great Commission. 
and um, it, I'm excited about the talk tonight, and so why don't we just jump right into it. You have the mission statement the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, the instructions of the Lord Jesus for us, the command to be about our Father's business in Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. These are imperative. What that means is that Jesus is not giving us the great suggestion. This is a command. And the way you respond to someone who says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The way you respond to someone who doesn't have all authority in heaven and on earth to the one who does have all authority in heaven and on earth is you obey him. You say, okay, this is, I mean, he starts this off with this massive statement about his credential to issue this commandment. It's huge. He's throwing his rank down and saying, on the basis of this authority, this commission that's been given to me, I'm delegating to you a responsibility. It's awesome. It's awesome. The way this is set up, and it's what's even, uh, what's horrifying is how we dodge it. How people try to avoid the assertion that's being made here and say, well, not for me. I'm not a pastor. I'm not, I'm not a pastor teacher, so I'm not going to teach people to keep or observe Jesus' commands. But he says, go and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we watched closely last week how this comes into English from the Greek. I've been challenged lately about English Bible translations. And uh, it's, it's funny how sensitivities work. Everybody has their sensitivity about this or that doctrine that they came up with. It rang true to them when they heard it, and they just, you know, they feel like that's so. And um, sometimes we think we're the standard or arbiter of what's true. And you know what? I never grew up with a commitment to the King James Version of the Bible. I never heard we've really got to do that. I also never grew up praying to Mary or the saints. Never was a thing, so it's not like something I have to overcome when I get back to the Bible. I'm really glad, though, that the Vulgate-only people back in the Middle Ages didn't win the argument over whether, whether to translate the Bible into English. I'm really glad that when they were like, no, it has to be in Latin, just like the Apostle Paul never spoke. The Bible's got to be in Latin because none of the apostles wrote a thing in Latin. None of the Hebrew prophets did either. They wrote in Hebrew. You know, I'm glad that the Vulgate-only people didn't win and we actually got a King James Bible, right? But see, the problem is that the Bible was inspired in the languages that it was actually inspired in. The Holy Spirit was actually operative in the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, John, and the, the, the Old Testament prophets in Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. That was how it worked. And we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. So what I'm saying is I never was sensitive about the King James in fact, I grew up in a tradition that sort of said, okay, here's what the King James says, and here's what the Greek says, and here's why they got it right here, and they're, you know, this isn't correctly translated. There's no such thing as a cockatrice. Never was. Um, or a basilisk or some of the other mythical things that, that we didn't know what the Hebrew noun was, so we just put a word. But there are sensitivities, what I'm saying about the King James Bible. It's got to be King James, and I've never... Uh, understood that from an emotional level, but I have had other things I've been committed to that I understand when you've got that deep-seated commitment that that's where orthodoxy is, it can be really challenging. And uh, I just want to challenge you that the, the way to think about this is how did God actually do it? Not how did brother so-and-so tell you he did it, but how did he actually do it? 
And uh, there were, there's been a whole church age before the English language was popular and before we were speaking this version of English. There were believers in Christ who knew what the apostles said in Philippians uh, before there was ever an English language. Think about that. And, um, but there was, no, there, there was no Philippians, no knowing Philippians, what Paul said in Philippians before there was a Greek language. It didn't exist before, and that's how history just is. And so I wouldn't know what to do in a King James-only circumstance because I'm constantly translating from Greek and Hebrew. I wouldn't have no idea. I would be, I would be what are we doing? I'm working, the, I'm working in the Bible. I'm working in the, in the Scriptures, in the original languages. What are these pastors doing? Well, one thing they're doing is they're trying to make disciples. They're teaching the word that they already know what the Holy Spirit said because it's in the King James. And so they're not approaching the scriptures the way I do, and I w- but I would never take anything away from their efforts based on their understanding to make disciples if they're truly doing that. And so I don't assume they're just sitting around waiting till church starts so they can just go read what they already know because they've already... Tr- the King James guys told us 400 years ago, we already know. Anyway, I, this is my translation. It's always my, if I put it on the screen, almost always it's my translation. And it will sometimes sound a little quirky. This one will do that for you here. It'll, it'll sound quirky. But the quirks show you that it's not originally in English. Paul was an awful English writer. He, he had no clue about English grammar, just pitiful. Because he's good at writing Greek. And Greek doesn't work exactly like English. But there's a, there's a, an analogy. So, all that to say, this word into. Into the name. What? Into the name of the Father. Because baptism is an identification. Baptism is, is going from one to another. By, and, and the idea of that identification in the baptism is why you have into. Singular name. One being. One essence. Three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. A, a, a little little doctrine of Trinity right here in the Great Commission. But you go and make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching. And I've, I've put it on the screen here. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the, the, the keystroke return when I put my translation on the next line and the next line. But I do want to show you he did inspire the grammar and I brought it over into the English order from the Greek order. So that the go and make disciples are the head verbs that are then modified by the subordinate participles, baptizing and teaching. And it's, it's, it's one of the most basic possible Greek sentences. Classical Greek, people that, that study uh, Greek, you know, from the 5th century B.C., Homeric, about 8th century B.C., but the classical Attic Greek and these classical writers, when they read the writings of people from hundreds of years before Paul, they go pages and pages without a main verb because it's all just implied. And it's hard. It's much harder, actually, to read classical Attic Greek than Koine. Koine, or biblical Greek, common Greek, that Alexander kind of got started um, when he united the Greek uh, peoples and then tried to conquer the world. Koine Greek is, is the basic common utility Greek. It's, it's utility, functional. Everybody needs to speak Greek, even though nobody around here speaks Greek. So we've got to teach people how to, how to function within this unified Greek culture that Alexander tried to pull together from all the nations that he conquered. And so we're kind of in the wake of that a few hundred years later, and it's very common, very basic. And so I think it comes out very clearly. The structure is very evident. The commands are in the main verb, in the, in the, in the uh, finite verb, make disciples, go and make disciples. 
And then the subordinate participles that start these clauses explain how you make disciples, and it's really explicit. It's really explicit. What am I supposed to do? Well, you'll always know the answer to that from Jesus' command, go and make disciples. What do I do now? Go and make disciples. When will I be done? You don't get to decide when you're done. I suspect it's when you meet Jesus face to face. You know, this is kind of a hard place to do it here on earth. Deceived, the nation's deceived by Satan, the enemy of God. It's a hard place to do this, and it's apparently the only place we're going to do it. Here in a fallen, broken world. Now, the culture you live in is not the world. You've heard me say that before. The culture, you're part of it. You're not the world. You are in the world, but not of it. But you are part of your culture, and we are speaking into our culture. We're using the language of our culture. But the world is Satan's system that is universally deceiving all the nations and has infected all the cultures. And so what, what do we do? Well, um, we better be about our Father's business and make disciples. And how do you do that? Evangelism ending in, the, in, ending in baptism. And then teaching them, and then watch really closely, to keep all things whatsoever. There I use a King James uh, relative uh, pronoun, whatsoever I commanded you. To, by teaching them to keep all things, and all things means whatever I commanded you. The commands that Jesus Christ gave the disciples are to be parlayed into the lives of those that they're going to teach. Here's a question for you. Who is the person to be a disciple of? He says, make disciples of all the nations, but uh, who would you say was the preceptor? Who is the one that we're saying he is the one who is making me his disciple? Whose disciple are you? Think about that for a second. Throughout church history, this question has been gotten wrong. Starting in Corinth, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Where are Christ? Who, though, is the preceptor? Well, the one who says it's his commands. I'm not teaching my commands. This is, this is why I'm very careful about issuing directives to you. You ready? I'm going to start giving you some commands from Pastor Dave. Here we go. You people need to be here every time the doors are open. You know why? Because I said, write it down. Pastor Dave said, you need to be at the prayer meeting at six o'clock on Wednesdays, period. I can make it. You're not more busy than I am. I've got 15 other things to do right now, but I'm here. See, I could, I could start issuing directions. I feel pretty good. Um, except for the whole First Peter 5, don't lord it over the flock. This is feeling really good. I'm gonna start issuing directives. You know what? If any of you are eating any nitrates in any of the meat that you eat, stop it right now. No more nitrates. Nitrates are out of the church. If you're eating nitrates, don't even, don't even bother showing up. But since you all have to be here every time the doors are open, you know you can't eat nitrates anymore. You're welcome. I got some more. I mean, you can, st- you can get all the food now without the nitrates. You just have to spend a little more money. And so let's just do that. It's a directive. I've issued it. It's for your good. Nobody could argue it. Ask any health professional. They'll tell you that he's right. You shouldn't eat nitrates. But the difference between I'm right and I'm right for saying it is a very big difference because it's not my decision and it's not the directive of the Lord Jesus Christ explicitly stated in Scripture through the apostles because guess what? Paul says, here's the deal. David Roseland says, here's what Paul says is the deal. You see the difference? Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's why we have the New Testament. That's why we listen to it. That's why we bound it together. That's what the New Testament is. It's the apostles of Jesus giving us his directives by direct revelation of the Holy Spirit. 
So the, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, would, t- would, would remind them of everything he taught them. So that when Jesus says, teach them to keep all that I commanded you, the Holy Spirit equips the apostles to write exactly, exactly what we need to know. And that's the function of the apostolate. And that's why we have the scriptures. And so if you're going to obey Jesus, it has to be apostolic. And we have to be careful to identify his commands and parse them from my commands. I've seen this a lot. I've seen the commands of men be passed off as the commands of God. And that's, that's starting to sound like Pharisees. That's starting to sound like what Jesus was opposed to in the gospel. So we have to be very careful. That's why years ago I tried to, to, to do a blog. And I found out that I also had children and didn't really have time to do a blog, be a pastor, and have kids, and be a Ph.D. student, and all the other things, and cut the grass. And I, but I did a blog, and I st- it's still out there, and it's called, um, it's called uh, Attention to Orders. And now that's fun, because Attention to Orders is how every military adjutant or, or spokesman, every, every, uh, every speaker for the commander, starts any official declaration as he says attention to orders and then he reads the command from the commander commander never gets up and reads his own stuff commander sitting over there with his you know his gold eagle across his across his beret or whatever they had now across his cap he's sitting there with his in command and he's not gonna read the order he wrote it actually someone else wrote it he dictated it the commander's sitting over there but the adjutant the 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 lackey, the person who reads the orders of the king, the herald, he says attention to orders, and then the, we do the commands. And, and every blog entry was an effort, to, it's a little devotional, was trying to, to pick a command from the scriptures that applies to the church-age believer, or you could apply it from the Old Testament uh, and see how this would be, be applicable to us, even though if not directly stated to us, because it was God speaking to Israel, like the Shema. And the effort was to show you how the commands of Scripture organize your life. And it, it really is so helpful to see uh, these commands. And um, uh, I love imperatives. I love the structure of imperatives. And the challenge becomes, do we really understand who's in charge and how clear it is when they tell us what they want, the person in charge, and then we do it. So... Um, uh, I picked up attention orders a few times through the years and tried to try to get it going again and uh, and someday hopefully we'll uh, we'll do a book or something and and that'll be fun but um, th- this is a season for other works so like right now what we're doing so the way you can be sure you're in the center of God's will for your life throw a little little Texas slang in there, your laugh. The way you know you're in the center of God's will is you pay attention to what he's told you. And Jesus said, this is the agenda. This is the mission. This is what we're doing. And so what's your cut? That's the big challenge for on mission. What's your cut if you're going to be in the center or aware of what the Lord Jesus wants for you? I will go so far as to say, this is God's plan for your life. You ever pray, God, show me your plan for for my life? It can be summarized here. Now, every one of you has a specific way. You and your own giftedness walk with the Spirit to do this, but this is what the Holy Spirit through uh, the Apostle Matthew has, has communicated from Jesus as our mission. This is it. What's your role in this? And now hopefully you can see now how valuable the local church becomes. The local church is the, is the institution by Jesus, the agency that comes together to pool our efforts to work our spiritual gifts together to demonstrate by our love for one another what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives to make disciples of those around us, of ourselves, to grow ourselves and be disciples. 
Behold, he promises I'm with you all the days, literally, all the days until the conclusion of the age. Okay? And um, by the way, remember he says, I, I am. He says, I am with you. He says, Behold, I with you, I am. That's, that's the Greek. Behold, I with you, I am. Because he's emphasizing in the sentence, him, personally. I'm with you. And so uh, this is reflective of what Jesus promises for those that obey him in John 14. Do you remember the promise of Jesus in John 14 about his presence? I wouldn't be hasty to identify what he's talking about here with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not the same person as the Son. I think there's a connection it's Christian spirituality. It's, it's the Holy Spirit in you. But there's more than just the indwelling of the Spirit. Look what he says in uh, John 14. You all know the upper room discourse. In verse 18 of chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And that day you will know that I'm in my Father and you are in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, just exactly what he's talking about here, in the, in the last words to the apostles who are going to start the church, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then Judas asks a question and then this is Jesus' answer. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. See, here in verse 20, Jesus' promise is right after the disciples are those that observe my commandments and behold them with you even to the end of the age. There is a close connection between the presence of Jesus in some spiritual sense, which I would call fellowship, and obedience, keeping his commandments. And I want to go through a rationale with you tonight. We've just seen the command issued. A rationale is a thought process. And you probably could reproduce this yourself. Let's think through it together. This is fellowship with God and his word. Here it is. First, you have the issuing of a rationale, of a command that Jesus gave us. Tonight, we're going to see that the applicability of the Great Commission has been challenged. It's been challenged. And there are a couple of things people say to try to weasel out of it. And it is a weasel. It's a, it's, it's a total, total jellyfish dodge. You don't want to be this person. And people that meant well have said the wrong things about this, especially hyper-dispensationalists, people that think that the, our words, our instructions come from Paul, but not from Jesus because Acts is a transitional period, which it was. And so we, we don't really get our instructions till Paul starts teaching. If you ever hear someone do that, you know what to call that. That's called ultra or hyper dispensationalism. And people like me that are tra- traditional or classic dispensationalists have to say, oh, we don't avow that. We completely reject that because we're uh, uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who have been empowered by his Holy Spirit beginning on the day of Pentecost. And yes, there was a transitional period of, of you read about in the book of Acts. But um, uh, we're part of the new order called the church, which began at Pentecost, not with just the writings of Paul. Anyway, the applicability has been challenged. We're going to answer it. We're going to assert that, no, this is the mission for the body of Christ, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I've tried to find my favorite dispensationalists saying this, and uh, so far I haven't been successful. I haven't looked at everyone, but Schaefer, who's my favorite theologian, he never said this. 
he applied the, the church. He said, this is our, our responsibility, the Great Commission. Okay. We'll, t- we'll give our response to the Lord's commands, and then we'll talk about what everyone's been waiting for the whole night. Metaphysics of sin and obedience. The concept of metaphysics of sin and obedience. And speaking of Lewis Berry Chaffer, does everybody know that, who that is? He is he's my favorite human uh, non-apostolic theologian probably in church history. Um, that's, a, that's a mouthful. In 1924, all those many years ago, he founded Dallas Theological Seminary just a couple of years after his mentor, C.I. Schofield, Cyrus Schofield, died. And, uh, and he was a pastor for some years. And uh, he, he said in his memoir, uh, in his recollections, he said, you know, I, I didn't want to get involved in a seminary. I knew if I started a seminary, I'd never get free of it. And he never did. And, um, and Chafer is, died, I believe, in 52. And so, and he was the first president of Dallas Seminary. And I think they're on their fifth or their sixth now. Um, I, have, I think it's the fifth. Yeah, it's the fifth. Anyway, and, um, and by the way, every one of those presidents I would commend as a wonderful theologian. Uh, down to the present one, Mark Bailey, one of my favorite living uh, men of the, of the word ever. And um, anyway, this man uh, wrote uh, a, a wonderful work called uh, Systematic Theology. Um, the Chafer Theology is eight volumes, and it's really six volumes with a doctrinal summary as volume seven. It's a helpful little, little guide, kind of a guide handbook, and then um, index is volume eight. So, but in, in volume four, reading about, writing about the difference between the age of the law and the, the way the life was lived under law and the, the age that's coming of the kingdom and, and the age of grace, as he calls it, he said, consider also that love as anticipated in the teachings of grace, meaning the new commandment Jesus gives, the, the specific new thing that's going to happen because of the Holy Spirit working in us, the fruit of the spirit of love. So he's talking about church age truth. And I, so I've supplied for church age believers empowered by the Holy Spirit only. So in anticipating these teachings of grace, love is the very heart of the evangel and of the of evangelism. Love, Christian love by the spirit, Chafer is saying, is the very heart of our gospel ministry. Now watch what he says. By the imparted divine compassion for the lost, which brought Christ from heaven to earth and took him to the cross to die under grace, men are, are to be impelled to win souls. That same love of Jesus that brought him down to die for us brings us out to, to love others with the truth. And it's a self-sacrificial thing to do that. So he says, such divine compassion for souls has been the dynamic of all soul-winning work from Pentecost until now. See, he's not a mid-axe dispensationalist or hyper. He's, a, just the, he's the classic dispensationalist. One of, one of many, actually. It was the experience of the Apostle Paul as, as disclosed in his testimony. He said, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience. See, King James. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that's just bad. Pneuma's spirit, it's, it's not a ghost. That's, that's, my wor- that's my biggest problem with King James. He's not a ghost. That had meaning back then that was, it wasn't right. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> um, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, Romans 9, 1 through 3. There was, see, he's showing the compassion of Paul in, in gospel ministry for his brethren. There was no occasion for the apostle to be accursed from Christ, nor did he expect to be, but he was willing to be. This was the love of Christ 
who bore the sin of others definitely reproduced in the one in whom the Spirit wrought. True passion for the salvation of men is not a manifestation of love springing out of human nature. It must be imparted from God. I think that is exactly uh, how to think about the Great Commission. And, um, and I was expecting, I went looking through Chafer to find him say that's for, that's for some other time besides now. But he was actually, uh, I, th- I think, thankfully, what I conclude on there is what he concluded. I love when my heroes uh, agree with me. And um, more importantly, I love when I think I understand the word and they understand it the same way because it's so very encouraging. It really hurts when your heroes are wrong or when you think they're wrong. They, they mess up sometimes. Did you know your heroes mess up? Jesus never does, but, but lots of people mess up in the word. And the question is, um, like in this context, I think Chafer misses it on the difference between grace and law. And I, I love him, but I think he's a little bit overstating something because the law of Israel was gracious. God loved them and graced them out by telling them what he wanted. So, all right, enough, enough uh, chafer bashing. Here's one challenge I've heard to the applicability of the Great Commission. You're not an apostle. Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples who are now the apostles. How can you appropriate this to yourself? This is for them. You don't think you're an apostle, do you? Hopefully no one does. No one here thinks that they're one of the 12. And the question is, is it Matthias or is it Paul that fills the place of Judas Iscariot? Don't worry about that. Jesus will tell us soon enough. <laughs> I suspect that Paul is different. But he's talking to the 11 is the challenge. And so how can you apply this to yourself, this great commission? That was the, his commission to them. And it basically tells you to read what they wrote. How can you say you're going to make disciples? I've got, in my neighborhood, I've, I have someone challenging me this all the time. How can you take this to yourself? A more common thing that I hear, anytime Matthew is challenging, Matthew is very challenging. Hate your family for my sake, Jesus says. So you're like, might as well be reading about eating, bled, eating flesh and drinking blood in John 6 to hear that kind of stuff out of Jesus and, and Matthew of hate your family. Anytime there's a challenge in Matthew, we don't want to obey it or we don't want to think about it or appropriate it into our theology. We say, well, that was for Israel. A lot of what Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew is for Israel. It's either explaining the Mosaic law or, give, or, or in that looking forward to the coming kingdom and what the administration of Jesus on earth over Israel, over the nations will be like. Kingdom rule, which we're looking forward to, believe me. The more I look at the headlines and government and, and government, I can't wait for the kingdom. Now, it's going to there's a lot of bloodshed to bring the kingdom, uh, a lot of suffering, a lot of uh, judgment's going to happen when Jesus does bring the kingdom. Um, but, uh, but that's one way people get out of the Great Commission. They say, well, that's for Israel. And that's, that's kind of an absurdity if you think about who's the uh, readership of Matthew. Who was Matthew written to in 55 AD? It was not written to unbelieving Jews. It was not written to unbelieving Jews. You know how I know? Well, I, 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 I believe it wasn't written to, I believe it was written to believing Jews. You know how I know? Because he doesn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in Matthew. He doesn't really say, it's not part of his discussion. And so people have said, well, the gospels are really different from Paul. And then the reformed people come along and say, no, it's all the same. Faith alone and a life of works, it's the same thing. 
So, so you're telling me that the gospel is to tell people to forsake everything they own and all their families and leave everything and live their lives of total self-sacrifice for Christ? That's what you're saying the gospel is? Well, that's what's in Matthew. That's a discipleship discourse for believers. Paul isn't, isn't saying by faith alone for justification and, and all that that entails, that that's the same as a life of works. He's saying that we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.10, for a life of works. And so Matthew is not a uh, come to Christ. John is that. John is what do I do with Jesus? For people who had Jesus but need more instruction in how to understand the Old Testament scriptures and how they relate to our Savior, that's Matthew. That's Matthew's what happened with the king and what do we do as his disciples? And so this is an absurd thing that Jesus is talking to Israel so it doesn't apply. He's talking to Jewish Christians who are one body with, with Gentile Christians as the new body of Christ. And uh, the, the third thing that you'll hear where people dodge the Great Commission is they'll say what well, was completed in the first century. See, all the nations are disciples of Jesus, right? <laughs> no, the, the, I believe the way this argument goes. I haven't yet found a, a writer. I've heard it said, but I've never seen a writer who says this. Not yet. I mean, I've, there's a lot of reading I have left to do, I'm sure. But, um, but I'm sure I could find it if I go read my hyper guys. Like, um, um, I, I always forget... Um, Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger. Everybody reads his stuff because he wrote synonyms and some other helpful books. Don't do the gospel and the star stuff, but the, but the synonyms in the New Testament, he's a Greek scholar. He's a hyper-dispensationalist. You don't want to get your theology uh, from him on these types of points, but um, I bet I could find Ethelbert uh, saying something uh, about how the Great Commission's already been fulfilled. See, all the nations have already heard the gospel and rejected it as the idea, just like Israel did or something like that. Um, and uh, so this is what it was to the apostles, and so they fulfilled it. And um, I can't imagine how you would ever think that in any country that any, any, any Christian was sitting in, in any place in the world, where you think this nation is discipled up. I don't think that until Jesus comes back, we'll be done here in our neighborhood making disciples of this nation. I mean, the Preston nation or the Mashantucket Pequot nation. <laughs> I, I don't think we'll be done making disciples until Jesus comes. So let's assert the applicability of the Great Commission. Uh, the challenge he's talking to the 11, I would say this. He says, make disciples. Make disciples. Who are these guys he's talking to? The disciples. What are they supposed to make? Come on, disciples. So to say this is only to the 11, he's telling them to replicate themselves. That's the most absurd challenge that people would say, well, it's not for you. Well, he's saying make disciples to the disciples. So you go replicate yourselves. Are we going to only do that one generation? No, because now by definition, a disciple is a what? A disciple maker. That's what it is to be a disciple. That's what Jesus is. He's the one that started the ball. He's the first domino. Actually, he's the finger. The father pushed the domino over and then everybody follows. That's how this is working. We're to replicate in others what has been brought forth in us. And every one of us ends up not a disciple of Dave or of anyone else except Jesus. We're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what. Let's start a new denomination and call ourselves the disciples of Christ. 
In fact, we'll put it on a sign out front. We'll make a 501 and register it with the whoever, we read, the IRS and everybody, so that we now can put a trademark by our name, Disciples of Christ, and only a church with our brand can be Disciples of Christ. Let's do that. That is just an American tragedy of marketing ridiculousness because this is a universal charge for anyone on the whole planet God has a call on everyone's life. Your creator wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He sent his son to establish that relationship. It applies to everyone on the planet, whosoever will may come, and he is asking, will you trust me? And that's the gospel. And, and by saying that to the Muslims, by saying that to the Buddhists, by saying that around the world, we are part of God's work of calling. Many are called, but few are chosen. Most people, it turns out, reject this message. But the point that I'm seeking to make here is that we are to baptize those who believe and teach them to keep, observe all that Jesus commanded. And so when you say he was only talking to the 11, I think that's absurd. Now, I understand the reason you would say that because in the verse, he is only talking to the 11. But, uh uh-oh, Matthew is writing the specific things he writes for a specific purpose to a specific audience. And you have to account for what the author Matthew is doing in the inspiration of the Spirit. You see, Jesus said this in Aramaic. He didn't say it in Greek. He said it in Aramaic. But we don't have the Aramaic. You don't go reverse translate this from Greek into Aramaic, and now we know the words of Jesus. Put that in red letters. No, it's what Matthew quotes Jesus as saying. That's the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. Real quick, while we're just make sure we're all kind of get, get, get up to periscope depth and take a breath here real quick. Why are we listening to Matthew in the first place? Why do I, have any, why do I care what he has to say? Matthew, who's that? Levi? So he's part of a priestly family? Levi, the Levites? Is he, he's, a, he's a tax collector? That's a dirty, nasty sinner. Why am I listening to Matthew, Levi, the tax collector? I mean, he might have good financial advice if you want to strategize how to bilk your neighbors out of their wealth to, to, as a functionary of the Roman government. And all his, fam- all, his, all his neighbors, all the Jews around him hated him. He's, he's a tax collector and a sinner. I mean, he might have good advice about how, to, um, how to, to, to kind of be a grifter. But why am I listening to this guy, Matthew? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason. It's because I'm a Christian and I love Jesus because I want to hear from him, from my Savior. And he apparently has a method, has a way he wants me to get what he has to offer. It's through the Holy Spirit's work through his apostles. And so remember, 1 John 1, 3, the apostles' fellowship is with us by sharing what they've been given by the Lord Jesus so that we can have the fellowship that they have with him. And that's why the New Testament, that's really what it is. It's not just a Bible that we translated in English 400 years ago and we hold it. And sometimes I just hold it because it feels good. You know, it is, it is nice. I like to feel, feel comfortable when I hold this apostate New American Standard translation. All right. He's talking to Israel. The challenge. Matthew, you can't apply that to you. It's talking to Israel. Make disciples of the nations. I mean, come on, you, th- this is, blows the whole idea of Matthew's inapplicability to Gentile Christians. It blows it out of the water. Go, go make, the whole point is, that, hey, 30 years into the church age, Jewish Christians reading this, this is why the apostles are in all the nations. This is why we have this international ministry. This is why, by the way, think about it. If Matthew's writing to a Jewish, I believe a Jewish Christian readership, 
That seems to be his audience. It's very Hebrew. It's very Jewish of all the, the Gospels, all right? Mark is more to a Roman audience. Luke seems to be to the, the, the broader Greco-Roman world. Um, I love to do a synopsis, history, uh, harmony of the Gospels with you, but let's say that this is to a Jewish Christian readership. Most of those Jewish Christians are in, in the land. They're in, in Judea. And how are the Gentiles interacting by the time you get 55, 65 AD when, Mar- when Matthew writes, I believe the first gospel, Matthew, when he writes this to the Jewish Christian readership, what do they know about the Gentiles of Philippi, the Gentiles of Macedonia, the Gentile believers in Christ who are, who are fellow sharers of Christ with them? They know that these people have given of their wealth and their substance in the collection ministry of the Apostle Paul to support them in their oppression. That's, that's a big part of Paul's ministry. I mean, think about what's going on back then. Paul, in, in several of his letters, says, remember the saints in Judea, remember the Christians in oppression, and he's taking up collection in Corinth to go help them out, to go provide their relief. And so um, uh, I think that this makes a lot of sense of explanation that, yeah, see, the, the, the body of Christ is online. It's functioning. It's even blessing you you Jewish Christians who are uh, both in diaspora throughout the Roman Empire, but also still in Judea. The third challenge we had was the Great Commission was completed in the first century, and I've already said, I don't think it can be completed until people stop being born among the nations. I mean, um, let me prove that to you. The most Christian place in the world for much of the 17th century was Massachusetts, comma, the colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony. There was uh, almost a universal literacy rate, including among women, which is impossibly rare in the whole world. But they see Christians, Christians get hold of the Bible, and all of a sudden they're teaching their women to read. They're interested in women being fellow heirs of life and uh, no more um, advancing of womanhood than when you get God's perspective on womanhood, right? I mean, that's the true, that's the history of what Christian West has, has accomplished for womanhood. But now... Massachusetts. Now, I'm talking about, today we joke around about the People's Republic of Massachusetts. The first Baptist church in the New World was in Providence, Rhode Island. Now identified by the pagans as the most unchurched city in the United States. Well, we've already made disciples there. (laughs) Yeah, we need to make disciples and then actually get rid of our errant theology so that we start inventing new things like halfway covenants. And well, they're not really believers, but they need to vote. And since the state is the same as the church, no, it wasn't Massachusetts Bay. But since they thought it was, they said, well, you don't have to be a believer to be a part of the covenant. And then it just fell apart. And it's a tragic commentary on uh, just the flow of church history. Actually, world history since the fall is a study in man's depravity and failure to meet God's expectations and relate to him as he calls us to. Israel failed, we fail. The church age ends in a massive apostasy and, um, and it's, it's probably what you're observing today. Um, I, can, I can imagine a post-Christian United States with a continuation of the church age. I can imagine it where the, the, the gospel emphasis and, and heat is now in the Pacific Basin and I mean, more Christians in China than Americans, some say, Americans, Christian or otherwise. You know, more, more believing people than the population of the United States in, in China, as some reports have said. I mean, I could see it going there, and, but, but it's hard to imagine post-Christian United States until you look at the headlines 
and the best chance we've got for a uh, <laughs> constructive interpretation of the Supreme Court is, is all pornified. It's, you can't look at the news and tell the kids what's going on with the news. What's going on with the president? Well, it's better you don't know, children. That's for, after, that's for late night. You know, really not for any, not any time of the night for us. But anyway, um, my rationale takes us from um, asserting that we are to, to submit to this great commission and obey our Savior is the challenging question. Would you turn, please, to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6, what's your proper response to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the answer? But let's go there. In verse 8, Paul says, just for a little context, if we have died, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so that's our pattern. We're dead to sin and alive to God is what he's saying. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What kind of word do you think consider yourselves to be? What do you think that word is? Do you think that's a, a friendly reminder from the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, that's a command. It's a command to think something about yourself. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is sin? What is sin? Now hold that thought. What is sin in its essence? If you've got a definition of sin that doesn't include God as the definer of what it is, you really haven't figured out what sin is. Sin is a transgression or a missing the mark of something that has to do with God. And we find out about it in Genesis chapter 3. God says, don't do this. And then they turned around and did it. That's sin. Okay? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, the sin there, dead to sin, and the sin is is the nature we have of rebellion and disobedience of God. It's your sinful nature that... Uh, calls you through the body with its lusts. And do not go on presenting. There's the word I'm after, presenting. Paratithemi, paratithemi, to show up for duty. Do not present for in, in, a, in a submissive posture, in an obedient posture, your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather, paratithemi, Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, the illustration I like to use for that word to present comes from the military experience that I had because I saw this happen every day, every weekday for years. When the, when the, the enlisted soldiers muster for the day's work, they don't mill around and wait till the foreman comes out and they... You know, everybody's standing around smoking, because they do. And they're all just kind of doing whatever. And then this former comes on, they're kind of quiet, and they kind of listen to him for a second and, and then start cussing about what he says. That's not how it works in the military. At least wasn't when I was there. Um, what, actually, what happens is they're all milling around smoking and complaining like young people do, some that don't know what they're doing with their lungs. But, but then when the first sergeant comes out and it's time, they form up. They get in line. They 
get rid of whatever they had in their hands, empty their hands. In fact, they cup their hands and they stand at attention. Do you know why they're doing that? Because it looks good. No. I know it does, but that's not why they do it. They stand at attention with their hands empty and their hearts open, ready for their instructions because they are presenting themselves for the day's work. That's the way it works. You stand at attention and whatever, my ears are open, my mouth is closed and whatever you have to say is what I have to hear. And the first sergeant may walk around as he's talking to them. If they're at attention, uh, usually he's not. Sometimes he will be. Maybe he'll put them at ease. It's the same thing. They're standing there quiet. They just don't have to stand with their knees locked as bad. And they have to listen to whatever the first sergeant has to say. And do you think that that's a position of subordination? To say, I'm here to do what you have for me to do? Of course, that's what it is. That's what we have here. You present your members as instruments of righteousness. It is a willing, a voluntary subordination of self. Same language as Romans chapter 12 so I'll turn the page a couple times. Or you're presenting your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or I should say reasonable, service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, your goal is to understand, discern, and fulfill the will of God. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, See, the opposite of submission in presenting myself for duty is to say, well, it's about me and I'm not going to put myself out for what God wants. You see the difference? So it's very clearly contrasted in verse 3. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then he goes through the spiritual gifts. Don't be arrogant, but recognize your giftedness and your calling to serve God. And so what is our legitimate, reasonable response to God? It's submission. I have a friend that hates that word. I don't say that word because I think there's like this MMA thing where if someone beats you bad enough, then you submit to them. And I really don't want you to pull a Jacob and wrestle with the Lord until he wounds you for life and you limp around for life because you were wrestling with God. I'd rather you just said, whatever you have for me to do, Lord, is what I want to do. You want to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ is with his heavenly father. Not my will, but your will be done. And that, I believe, is submission. It is the opposite of arrogance. And I believe arrogance is the opposite of submitting to God. And watch this. I'm proposing that there is no neutral. We're either submitting to God and willing to obey Him. It's an attitude of submission with an action of obedience when the the occasion arises. An attitude of submissiveness, of obedience, that, act, that actions in obedience, or we're arrogant, or we're rebellious, autonomous. I know that the world tries to live between those two. We try to say, oh, I'm not fighting him. I just do my own thing. I think that's arrogant rebellion. The one who made you, made you for a purpose, and you're saying, I'm not going to fulfill that purpose. Now watch, let me, let me pull some culture, let me pull some world in the culture to show you, to illustrate as we swirl away from the gospel, away from the word of God as a civilization, as we more and more turn our hearts to what we can see and touch and enjoy and experience and have fun with instead of what God said, which you have to see with the eyes of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. The more your culture turns away from God, 
the more we're going to rebel against the obvious things that he said, this is how it is. Like, uh, whether you're a boy or a girl. Oh, no. You, you can't, I mean, used to, that was like, how many, chromos- how many X, X chromosomes do you have? That's really... And now we're like, no, science says that uh, the science is not necessarily determinative of what I am. And so science is now eating itself <laughs> in this civilization that can't defi- decide whether someone is a man or a woman uh, sexually. And I use that word sexually because I think gender is a, is a, is a red herring. I think that's a, a foolish word to use for this. I know it's what the culture uses. But see, we're disassociating gender from, from our birth assigned sex. Let's say what it is. We were made what we are. We, Lady Gaga <laughs> had a song you probably never heard. I'm looking at the crowd here tonight. You're still worried about the King James Bible, some of y'all, but um, <laughs> Lady Gaga said you're born this way. She didn't get the memo three years later that, well, no, no, you, you get to choose. <laughs> you're whatever you feel like. Well, I was born feeling like a, what I wasn't born as. See, the, the science is eating itself. And so we as a civil, I can just show you in your culture how man is, is just primed in his sinfulness to rebel against God. We can't even submit to what he made us, male or female. It's crazy. I know, it's, you're like, yeah, we know. All right, let's get to metaphysics. I saved the, the light stuff for the end. Metaphysics is sin and obedience. This is, by the way, this is a talk that I believe is intellectually on par with anything anybody's going to say philosophically, except you can't get it outside of the word of God. What I'm trying to say is your ideas stand toe to toe against anyone else's ideas. And this is, this is a really, really nasty thing we're about to say about humans. We're sinners. We are, we are raunchy and broken and, and vile. That's what we said. That's, that's, that's the Bible on what man is. That's why we need a Savior. If it's not that way, then Jesus didn't really need to do the whole cross thing. See, the, the cross is offensive because it says I'm not good enough. It says I need, I need somebody to do something about me. It says I smell bad in my sinfulness to God. That's not nice. But my righteousness is ours as filthy rags. What is the origin of human sin is my question. What is the origin of of human sin. See, the doctrine of sin is actually a really challenging thing to run down. And when you start studying it out in theology, you find the different schools of theology really quickly on this doctrine. By the way, this is the one that if you let go of this one, the civilization follows, you know, falls apart pretty quickly. Um, What is the origin of human sin? Historically. Genesis 3, disobedience of Adam in the garden. No, 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 pastor. Eve ate the fruit first and then gave it to her husband who was there with her in King James or any other translation and, uh, and he did eat. So it's not Adam, it's the woman. But, but if you watch the rest of the Bible, the, 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 the responsibility for the fall is placed in Adam. It has to do with, Paul says, uh, with deception of the woman and the responsibility of the man that he carried and so forth. But let's say Adam's original sin is the origin of our sinfulness. Are you following that? Where'd we get sin? Adam. Why are you a sinner? Adam. You're in Adam. We're born in Adam. We're, we're sinners. We're born sinners. That's Romans 5. This is where sin came from. Well, biologically, we know that there was no Adam because of uh, evolution. So uh, that story, evolution undoes your entire theology. That's the problem. So people that biologos and this, you know, his theistic evolution thing, 
Ask Bruce Waltke and guys like him that now advocate for, for God-created evolution, how do you, what do you do with Adam? Well, we don't really follow Genesis 1 through 11 real closely, but we're real sure of when Abraham shows up. 1 through 11, we have dispensed with. It's a myth. It's a true myth. Now, the, the historical thing that happened was we fell because Adam disobeyed God. And it's very clear from that origin that transgression or sin involves disobedience. That's really obvious. God says, he says, don't eat that fruit, and then they ate the fruit. That's that's sin. That's where it's first revealed to us. We can talk about the fall of Satan and the the rebellion of the angels. We're told about Revelation 12. The end of the Bible tells us what happened before the beginning of of man's sin. When we're just in Genesis, we don't know how, how the serpent became the serpent. We just know that Adam was not sinful in chapter 2, and then the serpent got involved, and then he is sinful. And that's the origin of man's fall. And the very beginning of sin is, is its disobedience. That's why I call this metaphysics, to really understand what sin is at the very root of it. It's disobedience. And so... When you say obedience, now we're talking about personal relationships. We're talking about somebody said, and then I either do or I don't do what he said. That's, that's, it's personal. It's not functional like, you know, I, you know I, I broke the rules so much as I disobeyed the rule given by the lawgiver. I violated the law of the lawgiver, and it's, it's personal. When you disobey your parents, young people, it's personal. It's it's also a functional violation of rules, but it's you disobeyed them. It's a transgression of God. Authority, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Authority or the right to make decisions involves obedience for those under the authority. Do you get, do you, does that make sense to you? When you've been given the authority to decide for the organization, then those under that aegis, under that authority, are to follow the decision that's been made. That's, um, that's, this is metaphysics. This flows from the very essence of God as sovereign. When he who has the right to say says this way and not this way, what we need to do is say, yes, sir, not this way, like, like what you say. So authority involves obedience for those under the authority. That's just the very origin of mankind. Now, Jesus Christ illustrates this in his life as one under authority. The father said, this is the mission. The son says, I will execute the mission. And that is something Jesus says several times through the gospels. I don't speak of my own, but what my father gave me, what I heard him saying, that's what I'm telling you. The Holy Spirit won't speak of his own, but those things that he hears, that's what he's going to say. This is not... Uh, Jesus as the the locus of the authority. It's Jesus uh, as one following the directives of his father. And so father-son language, you can see there's a subordination of role, of role, not essence, of role, of function. And by the way, while we're in the subordination, I'm not a subordinationist. I don't think Jesus is less in essence than the father. I don't think wife is less in essence or value than a husband. But I think that they have different roles. Different, different responsibilities. And it doesn't make a woman less to say that she is to submit to her husband. It makes a husband humble if he really knows what that means. It, get, it drives him to his knees to, uh, before God uh, to, to, for wisdom. But, um, but it doesn't make a woman less that she would submit to her husband. It doesn't make Jesus less or God the Son less than the Father in essence. Anyway, 
this is this is um, the whole thing. I mean, well, is, are you talking about for Israel? I'm talking about mankind under God, creature creator distinction. God is God and we're not, so we need to submit to him. So what do we say about every command in the Bible? It's just a no-brainer. It's really obvious. If God said to do it, then I should do it. If he said don't do it, don't do it, like eating the fruit that God said not to eat. The answer to my question is we should obey. Okay, this is metaphysics. This is, this is like if God is God and he's really there and we're created by him and that's theology and anthropology all you know, just summarized, then ethics are what does he say and that's what I do. See what I mean? It's, it's very basic. And, it, and when I say metaphysics, I want you to remember I'm talking about the personal God who is the origin of everything else, everything that is. He's the ground and basis for all existence. And that changes everything. And so the one who would please God must believe that he is and rewards those who diligently diligently seek him. So what do you call it when we disobey one of God's commands? In Genesis 3, what do you call it? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. You call it sin. In Genesis chapter 3, that's sin. What does that have to do with the Great Commission? It's a command from our Savior that applies to us. And if I don't obey that command because I want to seek neutral ground or I'm just not comfortable or whatever other excuse I've got, what am, what am I responsible to call that? It's just rebellion. It's just disobedience. It's, it's sin. Metaphysically speaking. Well, you can't say we're sinners if we're not making disciples. I think we're served notice when Jesus said this is the program. Now, how many Christians are there in, in the tragedy that is becoming the United States has been since its beginning, but <laughs> how many, and I love my country, I'm a patriot, don't misunderstand, I'm just saying we've lost our, our first principles. When, when you look at Christendom in our country, and I only know our country very well, I know some others some, but I just, I live here. When you look at what, are we on mission? Do we think that we're responsible to make disciples of all the nations? Do we think that's our objective, our agenda, our primary focus? Is that God's plan for our lives? Or are we playing the game the world around us is playing? That's the reason for our mission. Because I want to, um, I want Preston City Bible Church to not miss out on the opportunity in front of it. We are uh, we're sitting on a gold mine of opportunity. I mean, eternally wealthy, eternal wealth, not, not in the flesh. But we have to be willing to see the opportunity for what it is. This, this church could run four good news clubs, just for one example. Oh, here he goes with the good news clubs. Pastor, we don't want to play puppets. Whatever. Okay, just think with me for a second. When you tell the kids at, um, at the elementary school up the street, when you tell them Jesus died for their sins, you know what they do? They believe it. You tell them God loves you, they believe you. And they love God back for it. And they believe in Christ as their Savior. It's what they do. We could run three or four of these things out of this little church. I know of a church smaller or the same size that does. Right? But we have to be on mission. We have to say this is the priority. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Why are we in the Word? So we're equipped and fueled to go do it. We go, go be with Mark um, at Beechwood Sunday after, after church. And, uh, and evangelize these people that uh, may or may not know Jesus Christ. There are lots of opportunities, but um, 
I'll close with this thought. I know I'm going a little bit long, but heck, you're, you've already blown the evening. We're here tonight, so um, last thought here. I was talking to a friend who asked me, I am in an interesting position to answer this question, by the way. He said, what are you doing in Connecticut? Isn't it your whole family? Isn't everybody from Texas? I mean, that's where everybody wants to go. There's no income tax down there. The people are way less liberal, a.k.a. racking up state debt worse than any other state in the whole country. I mean, uh, they've got their hair on their shoulders way better than up here. What are you doing up here where it's so expensive? Electricity's more, gasoline's more because they're both taxed out the wazoo. Like, what are you doing here? And I'm, I'm thrilled to say, I agree with you. <laughs> it's uh, way uh, tougher in some ways to, to make it work here financially. And the worldview here is far different from mine compared to your average gas station attendant in Texas, I guarantee you walk up and say, hey, how you doing to a person in Texas at, at any business? Y'all just came from Texas, didn't you? You know what they say? Oh, we're good, honey. How are you doing? And then they're all sweet to you. And they're, how's your mom? And uh, they might even you say, hey, do you have any place to be at church on Sunday at 10 o'clock? Oh, yeah, we go to the Baptist church almost universally. I mean, everyone you talk to is, is, uh, is churched and sweet and sometimes too sweet to you and and uh, it's just a different culture. So what, what are you doing here? And it's a great question. It's a great question. I have the privilege of saying, I have absolutely no business being here at all, except that God put me here. I really do believe he put me here. The way he showed me was not with a voice while I was asleep, but like he did with Samuel, the prophet, but uh, with circumstances and opening doors for gospel ministry and this was where the door was open and everything else was apparently very interestingly welded shut sometimes with arrogance by those holding welders it was amazing how god shut doors that seemed like they were obvious and um and so why would he do that to me (laughs) well partly for your sake right why are you here partly for my sake right it's mutual but more importantly, for the sake of those who don't know Jesus Christ, that we're going to encounter to equip the saints for the ministry of service so that the, the body of Christ is built up because this is where the like all these people are liberals. That's right. They're all looking for a replacement God because they're not going to get their resources and their support from God. They're going to get it from Uncle Sugar, right? That cultural rot that we see of trading God for government. Those people need the gospel. So we have an awesome opportunity in front of us to be ridiculed, rejected. I've got Christians ridiculing me and rejecting me. It's always encouraging me to see that. Um, so do you. We all do, right? Um, my apostate Bible, <laughs> by translating from Greek and Hebrew, I'm not submitting to the inspired King James. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of, of hardships that we have to face if we're going to be serious about the mission that we've been uh, given, but um, it's worth it. It's worth it because there's an evaluation coming. It's worth it because I've got a relationship with a Savior, and I'm either pleasing to him or I'm not. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mission. Thank you for your son's instructions, his guidance, his clear uh, statement of his expectations for us. That when we slow down and read them carefully and consider how to organize our lives. It's very clear, Father. Thank you for the young people here, some missionaries, 
already, some considering mission work. All of us truly missionaries in terms of our position here on earth physically when we really belong as citizens of heaven. And Father, I pray for you to open doors of ministry. Father, give us all the wisdom to to watch for the doors to open, to be in constant prayer, to relate to you as uh, you want us to with open hearts, always in your word. And then, Father, we need the wisdom to speak a word of encouragement, to begin a conversation that will give birth to many more conversations, that will demonstrate your love and perhaps the opportunity to win some to know Jesus Christ. Father, we need this work. We want this work. It's your son's instruction that we would pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send workers. Father, make it so in our time. We don't deserve it, but we know that it's what you want. And by your Spirit's work in us, we're capable. And we look for it in Jesus' name. Amen.